a Christian, if you have been bought by the blood of Jesus Christ, if you have been redeemed from your old way of life, if your eternity is now held secure in the unfailing hand of Christ, and you are sealed by His Spirit, and I want you to take a moment and thank God that you believed. I don't want you to credit at this moment a parent or a teacher or a preacher or a friend who shared the gospel. I don't want you to praise your intellect, your education, your life experiences. I want you to simply thank God that by his grace you believe. I want you to consider that the God of love and mercy and grace is the one that took away your blindness. He is the one that with patient pursuit overcame your reluctance. He is the one that has provided the means for your faith. He is the one that we worship for our salvation today. Thank God that you believe because of God. Now, if you're not a Christian and you're in this room today, and maybe you're a bit resistant to belief. Maybe you're struggling to say, yes, I believe that. Yes, I accept who Jesus is, what Jesus has done. Yes, I accept this message that you give as the gospel. I'm struggling with it, honestly. And ask God that he might grant you belief today. And even for someone who perhaps by chance you're here and you really don't even want to be, maybe you're coerced or maybe you're not of the age of your own self-autonomy, so your parents brought you. And you're antagonistic towards this. Ask God with honesty, sincerity. Help me to see. Enable me to believe today. Reveal yourself to me that I might too place my trust in you. Let's pray together. God, I pray that our understanding of our salvation would grow today. Not just so we might know more, possess more information, better biblical knowledge, more theology. All those things are means to an end. That we might love you better. That we might renew our devotion to you today. That we might have a sense of deeper commitment to you today. That, that, that our worship would be richer, more real, because it's all centered on you. Father, we might leave her confident today that far bigger than circumstances and problems is the God that we love and who loves us. And that when we wonder about who we are and if anyone sees or notices us, what we're worth, what role we play, why we're here, we'll have a sense of something so much greater than we could ever imagine, more than anyone could ever give us, more than we could ever sort of conjure up for ourselves. But to know that we are deeply loved, from all eternity, by you. That you are not just the God of creation, you're not just the judge of the end, you're a father to those who belong to you. May we love you as father today. Father, for those listening and hearing, watching, seeing, sometimes we do those things, but we don't hear and we don't see. Father, I pray you would enable both today. Pray the beauty of Christ would shine through these words, shine through the pages of your book, 
And Father, you would make your glory known as you reveal his face to us. So that in seeing your glory, we might trust you and believe and be changed. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Our text today is Isaiah chapter 53, verses 1 through 3. Let me give you this as a preemptive encouragement to the message today. Stay locked in. Get your pen out. Make some notes. I'm going to cover a lot of scripture today, and I hope that as I do, you're going to see the connecting points between Old and New Testament alike and the great arc of God's story. And maybe some things today will become clearer and plainer. Maybe some things will become obvious that you've not seen. Maybe for someone today, this will be the very first time, and this will be more than just a discovery of something fascinating to you. This will be a revelation from God. And that's our hope, and that's our prayer. But that every Christian today wouldn't simply go through the motions of sitting through a sermon, which we've done innumerable times, but would have a sense of encounter with God, because we encounter him in his word today. Isaiah chapter 53, verses 1 through 3. Who has believed what he has heard from us? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? For he grew up before him like a young plant and like a root out of dry ground. He had no form or majesty that we should look at him and no beauty that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And as one from men, from whom men hid their faces, he was despised. And we esteemed him not. This prophetic account of the rejection of Christ, not simply the coming of Christ, but the refusal of people who look on this one named Jesus and disparage him, reject him, despise him, is a shocking part of Bible prophecy. But we know it's true. We see the history of this in the Gospels. And it's clear as that people looked on Jesus he was not at all what they expected. People were blind to the beauty that is Christ. They were blind to the beauty that was revealed in Jesus. The Bible says that he was unremarkable in his birth. There was nothing particularly remarkable about his birth that could be seen. We know from the scriptures he was born of a virgin, and certainly that is the most remarkable aspect of birth. I'm not denying or speaking to that. I'm saying when people looked at Jesus, they didn't see anything unusual. This is a baby. This is a baby born with, as far as we can see, a set of parents. In fact, in Matthew's gospel, he goes so far as to make sure that we see that Jesus had a typical family tree. You can look him up on your, do I need another microphone? I don't know why I'm clipping here, but it's going to drive me crazy. And Are we good? You want to switch to this one? Okay. You guys are all fired. <laughs> Some of you are saying, I'm glad I quit. Let me back up. People look on Jesus, and they didn't see this, this glowing image. They didn't see a halo above his head. They saw a lower-income family, young at that, giving birth in very austere conditions in a cave meant to house animals. They couldn't even get a place in the inn. There's nothing remarkable. He has a family tree. Matthew chapter 1, verse 1 says, The book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham, and meticulously goes back through all these generations, tracing them all the way back to the father of the nation, Abraham. He's, he has a tree like us. He was just a man like us. Hebrews 2.17 says, Surely it's not angels that he helps. Why did he have to become a man? Because he came to save men, not angels, or he would become an angel. 
Therefore, he had to be made like his brothers in every respect. I mean, he's just like us. It was one of the impediments to people following Jesus throughout his life and ministry. No, we know him. We've been with him. We've engaged. We have a conversation with him. We've been in his shop where his father makes things. He's just like us. Not only unremarkable in his birth, he was unattractive in his appearance. I mean, fair or not fair, people sometimes are drawn to people they find attractive, compelling by their appearance, by their qualities, their external qualities. But Jesus didn't possess those. Isaiah 53, 2 says he had no form or majesty that we should look at him, no beauty that we should desire him. He wouldn't stand out in a crowd. He wouldn't be picked most likely to succeed. He wouldn't have been the guy that everyone wanted to be around. That wasn't who he was. It wasn't his purpose. In fact, we could say in an overarching sort of way, Jesus was utterly unlike the expectations that people had for him. We're familiar, I think, particularly at Christmas time of Isaiah chapter 9. We read these verses, it seems, annually. For unto us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and of peace will be no end. On the throne of David, over his kingdom, to establish it and hold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. The zeal of the Lord will do this, but in their day he didn't, and he wasn't. He didn't sit on a throne. He didn't depose of his enemies. He didn't establish universal peace. In fact, he's right there in front of us. The Messiah of God, the planned gift of God for the salvation of all who would believe. And he's right there in front and we don't see him. We were blind to him. And people still are. Some of us may still be. In fact, not only were we blind to him, it wasn't just a passive disregard for Jesus that marks us. It's an active disdain for Jesus that defines us. We abhor Jesus for his agony. Jesus was, by every earthly standard, ultimately for all the good that he did, the message that he told, and certainly the people that he helped and healed and even raised, his life ends in what appears to be abject failure. And it comes crashing down. The Jews rejected Jesus because he failed to do what they expected a Messiah to do. I was reading an apologetic site for Judaism today. How to counter those gospel, those pesky gospel conversations that those Christian people try to have with you. And they said, well, consider this. Jesus did not have a claim to the throne of David because even in the words of Christians and in their own testament, he doesn't have an earthly father. So Mary doesn't count. The temple's not rebuilt. We still have 2,000 years of war and conflict. Jesus is not king over everyone, ruling over everything. And unlike the Old Testament promises of Messiah, the whole world does not acknowledge him. Without understanding the ultimate plan and purpose of God and the fulfillment of God, ultimately they disregard him. But what was the ultimate stumbling block in their day? Suffering. This is not what a Messiah does. A Messiah is not a suffering servant. It's it's more than a paradox to them that the chosen one of God, the anointed one of God, would be so horrifically treated, so incredibly abused, so, so absolutely, even disgustingly crucified 
It's more than a paradox for them that that would happen. That's blasphemy to suggest that God's chosen would do that. They could not overcome it. In fact, the Apostle Paul knew this full well. Steeped in Judaism, not only as a student, but as a teacher, a rabbi, he knew that a crucified Messiah was a stumbling block to Jewish people. They abhorred him for his agony. Measured up, Jesus evaluated, scored. We measured him and we considered him worthless, according to Isaiah 53. We measured him and considered him worthless. Our minds were corrupted and incapable of comprehending. Romans chapter 1, verse 18 tells us, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. Something about sin renders us less and less capable of seeing godliness, godly truth. We suppress it. Those who actively deny the reality of the existence of God have a reason to do so. They have a cause. They may not have expressed it to you. They may not even fully understand it themselves, but they've got an underlying cause, something that makes them resist this God, this God of Scripture, this God of creation, this God of judgment, this God of authority. He says, what can be known about God is plain to them. God has shown it to them. His invisible attributes, his eternal power, divine nature have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made. There's something that's undeniable about God just in the world that we live in. The created world speaks of a creator. God shows himself in this by intention. He says, so they're without excuse. To deny God renders us without excuse. For although they knew God, knew something of God, knew the existence of God, saw a picture of reality in front of them about God. They did not honor him as God or give thanks to him. But, and understand these words, they became futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts were darkened. Now, that's a powerful statement. And don't fly right over that. The way we think became broken. We can't trust what we think anymore. We've warred against that which is true. We've denied the evidence which is plain. We, we've suppressed reality. And the definition of that suppression is insanity. And we've broken our very thinking and our hearts become dark. Claiming to be wise, we become fools. And we exchange the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. All the deviant ways people express some religious desire. Paul goes on to say in Romans 3.11, in the first part, that no one understands. No one. No one understands. 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 14, the natural person. Us in our natural state. Just who we are, typically. Regular us. The natural person does not accept the things of the Spirit of God because they're folly to him, foolishness. And he's not able to understand them because they're spiritually discerned. Minds corrupted and capable of understanding. We, we looked at him and we saw nothing of beauty. When people looked at Jesus and they saw his face, they didn't think of God. They didn't see the beauty of the creator. They didn't see the love of God, the mercy of God, the grace of God, the strength of God. They saw nothing of beauty. Why? Because our emotions were bankrupt. And bankrupted emotions are incapable of rightly desiring. What we feel, what we want, 
broken, bankrupt, incapable of desiring. In that second part of Romans chapter 3, verse 11, he says, no one seeks for God. In the first part, he says, no one understands. And no one seeks. All have turned aside. Together they become worthless. No one does good, not even one. In this bankruptcy of not understanding, not being able to understand, we don't desire. Ephesians chapter 2, in the first couple of verses, says, you were dead in your trespasses and sins. Sin had killed off the spiritual life in you. Not made you sick. Not made you weak. It killed off your spiritual capacity you didn't see and you didn't desire. He says, you once walked in this following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air. You may not have believed there was a personification of evil. You may have denied the existence of evil or an evil being like Satan. But you, like everyone else, live this way. What's the result of that? 2 Corinthians 4.4. 4. The, the God of this world has blinded the minds of unbelievers to keep them from seeing the glory of, uh, the glory of Christ by the light of the gospel. We've been blinded by seeing that. We've been blind to see the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who's the image of God. Blind to his beauty, bankrupt in emotions, no longer desiring. And then, as this progresses... We despise him and we reject him. Despised and rejected is the way Isaiah 53 describes the coming of Jesus. Our wills are enslaved. The very things that we go after now, the very freedom we think we possess, is bound by our own sins. Our will is bound. We are incapable of believing. Romans 8, verses 7 and 8 says, For the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God. It does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. It does not. It cannot. Those who are in the flesh cannot please God. Romans 8, verse 8. Jesus described the same broken condition, broken in thinking, broken in desires, broken in ability in John chapter 6, verse 44. He says, No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him, and I'll raise him up on the last day. Or as he says again in John 6, 65, this is why I told you that no one can come to me unless it is granted to him by the Father. And a summation of our condition, again, the condition that says, who has believed what he's heard? Isaiah 53, 1. To whom has the Lord been revealed? And then we see this rejection in response to that, this summation by Alex Motyer, I think is spot on. Listen to what he said. He said, every aspect of human nature is inadequate. Every avenue along which, by nature, we might arrive at the truth and respond to God is closed. Our wills, enslaved and capable of believing. Our emotions, bankrupt and capable of desiring. Our minds, corrupted and capable of comprehending. Which then begs the obvious question, well, who then has believed? Obviously, you have Obviously, for 2,000 years, many, many more millions have. Who then has believed? Well, let's consider what the Bible says about belief. One, we know there's a promise that God gives. Every gospel presentation holds this trustworthy promise that everyone, all who accept God's terms, will be saved. This is the promise of God. Everyone who accepts God's terms will be saved. In the great message that Peter gave at Pentecost, Acts chapter 2, in verse 21, he's repeating a 
prophetic word from, from Joel. And he says, it shall come to pass that everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. So everyone who in hearing and believing calls is saved. That's God's promise. Romans 10, 13, everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Those who look on Christ crucified, those who recognize sin and repent, those who trust and believe receive the promise of God's salvation. Invariably, everyone who calls on him will be saved. But in our spiritually dead condition, we're incapable of seeing the glory of God in the face of Jesus. That's what Paul said to the Corinthians. The God of this world has blinded us. We're disinclined to turn to Jesus in saving faith. Again, listen to what he said. 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verses 3 through 6. If our gospel is veiled, veiled, hidden, if it's veiled to those who if it's veiled, it's veiled to those who are perishing. The lost don't see it. In their case, the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. For what we proclaim is not ourselves, but Jesus Christ as Lord, with ourselves as your servants for Jesus' sake. For God, who said, let light shine out of darkness, has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. What is he saying? How do you overcome blindness? It's the same way that God overcame darkness. God, by his miraculous power, God, by his spoken word, God, by his will, spoke light where there was darkness. Let there be light, and there was light. God, by his will, God, by his power, God, by his desire, takes those who are blinded in darkness and grants them sight. It's the gift of God's grace that does this. So what's our hope? Why then should we believe? Why has anyone believed? How do we answer the question of Isaiah 53? In a word, grace. Grace. Why then have they believed? Why have some seen and trusted? Why have you, while others have not? Why have some of you and some of your family members have not, who grew up in the exact same household, heard the exact same message, who followed the exact same example? Why have some believed? In a word, grace. And it's God's grace expressed in his saving call. God calls those to faith. Some examples. Matthew chapter 21, which we'll visit sometime in the new year as we explore the gospel of Matthew together. The parable of the wedding feast in Matthew chapter 21. Many invitations are given out. Some make excuses. Some reject them rather adamantly. Some even persecute the people bringing the invitation. And then he says, just go out and fill my house. And even then the king looks at some of those who are there and says, you don't have wedding clothes. And he casts them out. And he ends that parable with this statement, many are called, but few are chosen. Many are called. Many at Pentecost in Acts chapter 2 heard the gospel. But God was calling some savingly in that day, granting them faith. Again, similar parable in Luke's gospel, chapter 14, ends with, For I tell you, none of those men who were invited shall taste my banquet. Or again, Peter in Acts chapter 2, verse 36, he said, Let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. He gives the gospel. He gives the plan and purpose of God. He says that Jesus died for our sins. He teaches it plainly in this great sermon. And then this response of faith. Listen to what he said. Now when they heard this, they were cut to the heart. They said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, Brothers, what shall we do? And Peter said to them, Repent. Be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. 
For the promise is for you and for your children and for all who are far off, everyone whom the Lord our God calls to himself. As he's given this declaration, and for some of those listening, it cut to the heart, the Bible says. Some of them, it affected the will and the emotions and the thinking. And their response was, what do we do if that's you? What should your response be? Repent. Repent. Turn from your sins that have separated you from God. Repent. Believe this good news. Believe what Jesus has done for us. Trust in him and follow him. He's made a promise to you. And then I think of this glorious pinnacle of the book of Romans. This scripture that we all cling to in one way or another as Christians. Romans 8, 28. But consider the foundation of Romans 8, 28 and why we're able to cling to it. We know what the first part of it says. We know that for those who love God, all things work together for good, for those who are called according to his purpose. How is it that we're able to know that everything works together for good? How do we know that? How can that be more than just a sentiment? How can that be more than a hope, a wish, a dream? How can that be a certainty? Verse 29 says four. Because for those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the images of his son in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. How can I know that God will work everything together for good? Because the God who in eternity past predestines also calls. And those who calls, he justifies. And those he justifies, he'll also glorify for all eternity. And so my confidence is rooted in the sovereign grace of God. I mentioned Ephesians chapter 2 a moment ago. In verse 1, we know this statement, this statement of our spiritual inability. You were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, he said. The response to our deadness is the mercy of God. Verse 4. But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved, he interjects. An important interjection there in this context. You were dead, but God who is merciful, rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead, made us alive. How are we made alive? By grace you've been saved. And now back to the story. And he raised us up. He made us alive. He raised us up with him. He seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. For by grace have you been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It's a gift of God, not a result of work, so that no one may boast. You see the certainty? We went from death to life because of the mercy of Christ who raised us up. He raised us up and he seats us in the heavenly places. I know you sit here right now today in Dothan in non-heavenly places. But if you're in Christ, you're already seated with him in heavenly places. What I ask you to be thankful for in your salvation is that now you're in the grip of him who will one day glorify you with certainty. We know this. This is the gift of God. It's not a result of works so that no one may boast. I love John Piper's statement on this. He says, grace is not God's response to our initiative. First I'll believe and then you'll make me alive. Are you kidding me? After all of this, 
Will you claim that you'll defeat the course of this world? You'll defeat the prince of the power of the air? You'll defeat the spirit that's now at work? You'll defeat, defeat the passions of your flesh? You'll defeat what's at work in your body and your mind? You'll overcome the nature to be a child of wrath? You'll overcome the nature to be a son of disobedience? And you will produce the glorious reality of faith to which God will say, Well done, you're alive. Now I make you alive. That's a dream. It's not reality. You did not initiate this. God raised you from the dead. So grace is what then? Sovereign grace. And you're going to praise it forever and ever. Consider the witness of 2 Thessalonians 2, 13 and 14. But we ought always to give thanks to God for you, brothers. Now think about that for a moment. It's a great Thanksgiving text. We ought always give thanks to God for you, brothers. Why? Brothers beloved by the Lord... Because God chose you as the first fruits to be saved, the prototype that others would follow as first fruits. God chose you as the first fruits to be saved through sanctification by the Spirit and belief in the truth. To this, He called you through our gospel so that you may obtain the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. What is the never changing, never ending cause for a Christian to worship? To always be thankful of this that God loves, beloved by the Lord, that you are loved by God. And that love is an unconditional love. Before you breathe a breath, said a word, mustered a thought, determined an action, made a response, you were loved by him. And the Bible makes it clear over and over and over that the antidote to our unbelief is God and His grace. Believers, you're beloved by the Lord. God loves. God chooses. God calls. And we respond. We hear this gospel. He called you through the gospel. And hearing the gospel, those that God loves and chooses and calls respond. How does this work for us? Well, sometimes the Holy Spirit awakens and draws people suddenly. Sometimes it seems eminently miraculous. These are the sort of testimonies that um, make it to crusades and events. The sort of things books are written about. Sometimes the Holy Spirit draws us and awakens us suddenly like he did with Paul or with Lydia. And Paul tells his own salvation account three different times in the Gospel of Acts. We see it recorded as, it's, as if it's happening in chapter 9. We see Paul reciting it again in chapter 22 and then again for a different audience in chapter 26. But the themes are always the same. I mean, consider verses that you may have read through very quickly without seeing the weight of them for a second. Acts chapter 9, verse 1. But Saul, still breathing threats and murder. What was the condition of Saul's life? What was the disposition of Saul's heart? He's still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord. Verse 3, now as he went on his way, suddenly a light from heaven shone around him and falling to the ground, he heard a voice saying, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And he said, who are you, Lord? Who are you, Lord? I'm Jesus. I'm Jesus whom you're persecuting. He was not on his way to church. He was not reading a book from the religious section of his local bookstore. He was not a seeker by any definition except of seeking those who were believers so that he could kill them. And this is what God did. This is an invasion. This is a conquering. This is an overcoming. 
As he says in chapter 22, as I was on my way, he did this. Chapter 26, he says the same. At midday, O king, I saw on the way a light from heaven brighter than the sun that shone around me and those who journeyed with me. And when we had all fallen to the ground, I heard a voice to me in the Hebrew language, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And he becomes a believer this day. How could he not? And Lydia, for instance, the first Christian that we see in, in Asia, Asia Minor, Lydia, one who heard, one who heard us was a woman named Lydia from the city of Thyatira, a seller of purple goods who was a worshiper of God. The Lord opened her heart to pay attention to what was said by Paul. The Lord did this. The Lord opens her heart. Sometimes it's sudden, but more often, the work of God in awakening and illuminating and drawing is in a manner that's imperceptibly gradual, gentle, and effective. In, in other words, we may wrongly credit ourselves. We may say, you know, I was in this long season of seeking. Or, you know, these events were happening in my life that really just softened me. Or I, I began to feel desperate. I began to look up and cry out. But in each of those, who speaks to us and when they speak, and what we hear and how we hear it, and what we face and what God allows us to go through are means of God's grace by which he's drawing gradually, gently, but effectively. Consider these statements of salvation. Again, in Romans chapter 1, verses 5 through 7. We've received grace and apostleship to bring about the obedience of faith for the sake of his name among all the nations, including you who are called to belong to Jesus Christ. What's your salvation look like? It's grace bringing about the obedience of faith. It's God at work in you. His grace is primary. His grace is initiating. His grace is free. And he's drawing us. Or to all those in Rome, verse 7, love by God, called to be saints, grace to you and peace. Or the promise, again, of God over time to redeem his own in Romans 8.30, that he will do this. Or consider this statement in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 26. We know the contrast. The Jews find a bloody Messiah to be a paradox or a blasphemy. The philosophical Greeks find it to be inconsistent with wisdom, incomprehensible to common sense. So in Corinth, Paul writes this by the Holy Spirit. He said, consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring nothing, bring to nothing things that are, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. And because of him, because of who? God. Because of God you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God, righteousness and sanctification and redemption, so that it is written, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. When you sing and when you praise and when you worship, in whom are you boasting? Him and Him alone. Thank you, God, that I believe. So, when God, by His grace, He calls, 
When he, by his grace, calls us, what must we do? We respond in faith. We respond in faith. We respond to the one who is revealed. We respond to the one who is now given sight. We respond to the one who's now given a predisposition of the will, who's created in us a desire, who's enabled this very faith that he calls us to. In his theological classic, The Bondage of the Will, Martin Luther states, when God works in us, the will, being sweetly changed and sweetly breathed on by the Spirit of God, desires and acts not from compulsion, but responsively. Responsively. God's grace at work in ways we cannot even fathom. Far more than our considering, evaluating, judging, comparing, pursuing. God at work in the heart and the desires, calling us to faith, and we respond. So what's your response to this today? I think really it's simple. Has God called you as a Christian and you responded in grateful saving faith? Did you at some point, whether you understood all that was happening behind the scenes, what all was taking place in eternity past or eternity future, have you responded to the call of God by faith and says, yes, God saved me a sinner? Forgive me. Have you done that? If so, then praise him. Your response is to praise the one who called you and saves you. Is God calling you today and you haven't yet responded in faith? But God is calling you. He's saying, this is my son. He will be your savior. Confess your sin. Submit to him and follow him. If God is calling you you haven't yet responded, then obey him. Then obey him. Are you burdened right now for someone who's lost? Someone who's resistant, reluctant, antagonistic? What should your response be? Give that person the gospel. Do what the Apostle Paul would have done. Would have given them the gospel. Do what Timothy would have done. Would have explained to them with patience the gospel. Do what every Christian has done in every generation who's faithful to Christ who's obedient to their commission as a Christian. Give them the gospel, and when you do, trust in him. Trust in him. Trust in him and pray. Pray that God, by his sovereign grace, would cause them to see, cause them to desire, enable them to respond, and they would respond. When we see Jesus in Isaiah chapter 53, all the human means of responding kind of blown away, aren't they? The Jews wouldn't choose that to be a savior. We didn't look on him and say, this is the one. And in his death, this is not what we imagined. His sacrifice is not the role of a king until God reveals, until God acts. And when God does, we respond by faith. I pray that you will today. Let's pray together. Father, I want that all of your children would not wait for eternity to recognize your grace. But Father, even now, would be, we would be awed and amazed 
at the love you have for us, the sort of love you have for us. Because some of us still labor under the false notion that your love for us is conditional, and sometimes I deserve it. And sometimes I, I, I should expect it because I'm doing good now, and I'm, I'm trying hard, and I'm, I'm there, God. You know, I'm attending, and I'm, I'm giving, I'm trying to serve. I'm... And those, those moments we think you owe us something that you haven't already given. But far too often we think the opposite. Knowing that we have not done well. Knowing that we've not been consistent. Knowing that we've not been faithful. Knowing that we have sinned. And Father, we question and we wonder. Lord, I pray that we have a deeper sense of your love for us. That shows up in your work through, throughout history and time. And outside of time. Father, I, th I pray that our praise for you, our worship of you, would all be, all be based on a right understanding of your grace. You did this. You did this. You patiently pursued. You lovingly revealed. You gently persuaded. You granted me. You called me. Father, you made me alive to faith, to life. Jesus. And I've responded, and Father, I don't praise my response. I don't praise my faith. I don't praise my understanding. I praise your grace. I praise your grace that saved me. And Father, even as I do, I know that your grace is greater than the sins of any of us. And if you could conquer the unbelief, the active, passionate disbelief Saul, you can do that for anybody that I know and all those that I don't. If you could call someone like Lydia's heart to be opened, then you could do that with my neighbor or somebody I work with or whomever you give me opportunity to give the good news to. Father, for those that weigh heavily on us today. May we renew our commitment to give them the gospel, the good news of Jesus. Knowing that you save those who respond rightly to Christ, to this good news, not outside of it, not saving without repentance and faith, not electing those who don't believe, but through the gospel. And Father, may we have a keen sense of confidence in you. The sort of confidence that doesn't cause us to shrink back and not share, but the confidence that says, I believe in the power of God unto salvation. This is the power of the gospel. For anyone who believes it, so Father, that we will share it. And Father, may we rest in you and trust in you. And know that you're good and your ways are perfect. And Lord, we will persist in prayer the salvation of those that we care about. Listen, as you pray even now, some of you as believers praising God for your salvation, some of you, I hope, praying for those that you know and care for that are lost. I want to speak to anyone in this room who's not. What I've described to you today is kind of outside human understanding. 
conventional thinking, maybe human wisdom. And it's not to say that God makes us automatons or robots. It is simply to say that every good thing that happens in our salvation is because of him. If he's brought you to tears today, praise him for that grace. If you feel like you've been under his hand of discipline, praise him that he loves you enough to create pain and heartache that would turn you towards him. If he's been changing your thinking and drawing your attention to read different things and consider different things, and praise God that that's the means by which he's drawing you and he's showing you, revealing you. If you wonder why all of a sudden you've got people that you never knew trying to talk to you about Jesus, thank God for a pursuing God. But every part of our salvation is to his credit and glory. All he asks you to do is to respond to this, to receive this. Will you now believe? Will you now believe? Will you now place your faith and trust in me? Will you come to me just simple faith, like Paul? Oh, who are you, Lord? Acknowledging, though, that he is Lord? Acknowledging this gospel story is true? All those things that so many rejected him for, all of us who belong to Christ will one day see fulfilled. You know that. We're going to see Jesus, the true temple. We'll see a city that has no need of light, for he is the light. We will see an unequivocal rule and reign over all peoples and all places for all eternity. We'll see every knee bow and every tongue confess. Listen, this is the king. This is his story. He's saying, now believe. Believe and follow me. Will you do that today? Father, I pray for your grace to be mighty upon us today. Lord, to stir the hearts of your people to praise and worship. Thank you, God. In this season of Thanksgiving, where maybe things are harder than they have been, or maybe in a season of loss or pain, I, Father, I could go on and on for all the things that concern us or hurt us or burden us or worry us. But Father, may we always be thankful that you have loved us, chosen us, called us, we have placed our faith in you. May we always be thankful for that. Father, I pray that you would bring more into your family today, more into your kingdom today, that there would be seeing and believing today. There would be understanding and trusting today. There would be yielding and surrendering to your goodness, to your authority, to your lordship today. That there would be forgiveness and justification today, that as sins are taken away, life is given, and everything changes. And I pray, begin today for some. And Father, I pray you would hear the prayers of your faithful as we pray for those that we long to see you as we do. Lord, this is our prayer and our trust and our hope. In Jesus' name, amen.